standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to have you back tonight. And tonight's night four of our presentations. And so we're going to begin tonight with prayer. I invite you to kneel with me, those that can. Father, I just come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I thank you that we all can be here together this evening. I thank you for your great love and mercy to us, the blessings of life and the blessings of understanding that you want to give us from your word. Jesus, I just pray that you would open up our understanding by your spirit, that you'd speak to our hearts. We claim the promise where two or more are gathered in your name, that there you are in the midst. And I just ask you to use me this evening, Jesus, by speaking through me, not for any good that I've done, but because I desire to be used. And I just pray that you would just bless in this evening, this understanding. As we look into more about pagan and papal Rome, I pray that you'd give clear discernment. And I thank you for your love and mercy to us. And I pray all these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in keeping with our theme, I'd like to go over it one more time. We skipped it last night, but I'd like to talk about it again tonight. In our theme, we're told that a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Now, that idea of prudent is those that are wise and simple, those that are foolish. And in the book of Matthew, we have a parable of the wise and foolish virgins. We won't go there this evening, but there is a contrast between two types of people that profess to believe in God at the end of time, and one is wise and one is foolish. And what we're striving to do here is to be wise as we dive into the book of Daniel and Revelation. And tonight what I want to do is I want to start with Daniel 7. Daniel 7, and especially focusing in on the nondescript beast in two phases, pagan and papal Rome. Last night, we talked about Revelation 12 and 13. And we saw how that in Revelation 12, we have paganism. And then in Revelation 13, we have the beginning with the papacy, which is a confirmation of Daniel 7. And then we finish with America in Bible prophecy, showing how that it would have to be something that came up somewhere else around 1798. And so we saw very clearly, I believe, and I hope you would agree, those that love history, that the way the Puritans came to America and settled this country would suggest that America is in Bible prophecy in Revelation 13. Now, we also see Rome in two phases in Daniel 8. And we talked about that on our second night as well. We started with the ram, the goat, which the ram representing Medo-Persia, the goat representing Greece, and then the little horn that came up among the four horns and waxed exceeding great. And so we are dealing with pagan and papal Rome, but it cannot be emphasized enough how important it is to grasp this understanding. From a historical perspective, it tells us a lot. And we must remember that God declares the end from the beginning. If you go with me to the book of Isaiah again, let's go there and look at this text again. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9, Isaiah 46, verse 9, we read, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand 
and I will do all my pleasure. So we are hitting the high points here. But we're going to touch a little bit on this again tonight as we go forward about how the Lord declares the end from the beginning. But what I'd like to do is now go to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And let's look again at the ram, the goat, and this horn. In verse 4, we read about the ram, which represents Medo-Persia. It says, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will, and he became great. Medo-Persia was a great empire. But let's read about Greece. In verse 8 of Daniel 8, it says, Therefore the he-goat, what did the he-goat do? The he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And then in verse 9 of Daniel 8, we read, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great. So we have great, very great, and exceeding great. And this horn waxing exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. Once again, we are seeing Rome in its two phases, and it was exceeding great. It has been around for 2,180 years, if you think about, when Rome came into existence, all the way down to our present time in its two forms. That would make it exceeding great, don't you think? So from this we see there's a lot of emphasis on pagan and papal Rome from a prophetic perspective. Both are persecuting powers, but there really is something to consider in the attitudes of these two phases of Rome, pagan and papal. Now, if you look in verse 11 of Daniel 8, we read, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. Now, this is speaking of pagan Rome and the crucifixion of Jesus. What I'd like to do as we consider this, considering pagan Rome and its attitude as opposed to papal Rome and its attitude. If you go with me to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, in the first verse, we read, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. Now, what nation was Jesus perverting? He was perverting pagan Rome because they were under the authority of Rome. And forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. So now we know exactly because the text is clarifying what nation is being spoken of. It's Rome saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now that was a big deal to say when you were in pagan Rome because the only king that they would recognize was Caesar. Now we see this if, as we go to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, we'll be reading in verse 9. John 19 verse 9. And we read, And went again into the judgment hall and said unto Jesus, this being Pilate, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. That being the Jews. But he would have a sin too. 
if he crucified the Son of God. If he consented to the death of Jesus, Pilate would be in sin as well. In verse 12 it says, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. A lot of times I don't think we've really considered what is being said here. In verse 13 it goes on to say, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Have you ever stopped to think about why this would be being said? We have no king but Caesar and the attitude of pagan Rome as we're talking about these two phases of Rome. But before we answer that question, let's look at one more text. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. And in Acts 17, verse 6, we read, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Now, what world are they turning upside down? They're turning up the Roman Empire. They're turning it up upside down. How were they turning it upside down? Whom Jason, verse 7, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. All the people got upset. Why? Because in pagan Rome, everybody acknowledged Caesar as top. Now, they worshiped false deities, but Caesar was at the top of the totem pole, the top of the totem pole for them. He was the chief of all gods that they worshiped. So what would happen? When Rome would conquer a people, they would then annex that people and they would let them keep the government that they had. They wouldn't take it away from them. They'd let them keep their rulers. They would also let them keep their pagan forms of worship. They didn't take that away either. They didn't force them to worship the way they did. As a matter of fact, what Rome would do is they would even take on the deities of the conquered and put them in the pantheon. And so when they came to Rome, those people that had been annexed could worship there. This was the way Rome kept everybody feeling good and connected to the government. We see a slide here of the Pantheon. They would put their false gods there. All gods. It didn't matter. So pagan Rome was open to all kinds of worship. They would even mix and match and create their own versions of worship as they found new ideas from conquered people. Now does this sound familiar to us today? Does this exist even in our world? Well, perhaps you've seen this before. Coexist. This idea of coexist comes from pagan Rome. And if you think about it, all these things associated pretty much with coexist in one way or another are pagan. Now, as long as you did not say that your deity was over anybody else's or that your deity was over Caesar, everything was fine. And it's the same way today in our world. You don't say that, everything is good. But there was a problem. Why was there a problem with Jesus? Well, in 2 John, verse 3, we are told why there would be a problem. 
In 2 John verse 3 it says, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the Son of the Father in truth and in love. Christ, being the Son of the true and living God the Father. What would that make him? Well, that would make him a prince. And we read about this in Daniel 8, the prince of princes. Isn't a son of a king called a prince? He is. So, if we go to Colossians, go with me there to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We read something very interesting about this relationship between the father and his son, Jesus Christ. It says in verse 15, speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. So the father is invisible. You can't see him. If you want to see a manifestation of him, though, you look to Jesus, his son. It says here, the firstborn of every creature. That is what Jesus is. In verse 16, it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, by Jesus, and they were created for Jesus. And verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and by him, that being Jesus, all things consist. And then in verse 18 it tells us, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So Jesus is over all things, and he is the head of the church. He is the head of us, God's people. Now that would make him king over us. And therefore, it would make him king over papal Rome. Now we have a problem. We have a problem because Caesar knows no other king than himself. And so when Jesus comes saying that I'm the son of God, he's saying I'm your king. And they're saying we have no king but Caesar. They were denying his sonship. They were denying his kingship. They were denying him as the prince. And today we see the same resistance in our world, do we not? But here's the thing. We see something quite different with papal Rome. Papal Rome, the other form of Rome on this chart here, or I can go back here and show you this chart, pagan to papal Rome as we see in Daniel 7, and then the little horn of Daniel 8 as we'll be looking at this evening. We have a real problem with how papal Rome handles things, quite differently than pagan Rome did. Papal Rome could have none other higher than herself, not even the Son of God. I'll call attention to just one quote. There are many like this. And something interesting about Papal Rome, Papal Rome being an amalgamation of all the great empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, is that it takes on the attitude of the bear, of Medo-Persia, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which could not be altered or changed. And so once the papacy says something about itself, that's what it believes about itself, and it does not change. So right here we read our reference from Pope Pius V, Cites Petrus Bertanius, the Pope and God are the same. So he has all power in heaven and earth. So here we're saying that a man and God are one and the same, and they have all power. The Pope has all power. Now, another quote, just to kind of show you the attitude of papal Rome. The Savior himself is the door of the sheepfold. 
I am the door of the sheep. Into this fold of Jesus Christ no man may enter unless he be led by the sovereign pontiff. And only if they be united to him can men be saved. For the Roman pontiff is the vicar of Christ and his personal representative on earth. Very interesting here. No man may enter unless he be led by the sovereign pontiff. Now Jesus Christ says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. But here we have a man saying that. This shows the character of papal Rome to be quite different than that of pagan Rome. She would not have any competition. And as we talked about on night two, as we looked at the 1260 years of papal dominance from 538 to 1798, that was exactly the case. And I'm sorry to tell you that right now everything appears okay, but it's not going to remain that way. It's going to happen again because we're told in Revelation chapter 13, if you go with me there to Revelation chapter 13 verse 4, Revelation 13 verse 4 we read, and they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, we saw last night that this is papal Rome. And in verse 5 we read, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. All the world will one day worship the beast and wonder after the beast and will say, Who is able to make war with him? For 1260 years, nobody could make war with the papacy, and that is going to happen again. It's all coexists now, brothers and sisters. Everything looks like, well, unicorns and butterflies as far as it goes religiously, but it's going to change. The attitude will change. And you will not be allowed to believe what you want to believe when the papacy ascends again the way it once was, and the world wonders after it. And we are to warn the world of this as God's professed people. We are to tell them what is coming, whether they want to hear it or not. Because of the sure word of prophecy, it tells us it will be the case. And if you are not with the Father and the Son, then it's time to get on the right team because time is getting short. And we're going to see more of that tomorrow night as to why time would have to be very short for us. Now go with me to Revelation chapter 14. We need to get on the right team, and here's why. It tells us in Revelation 14 verse 9, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, or receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be torn with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Those that end up siding with this are going to receive the plagues, and they're going to receive destruction. Not because God wants them to be destroyed. He's doing everything he can to save them but there will come a time when there will be no more opportunity from a decision. Well, let's talk a little bit about this transition from pagan to papal Rome so you can understand how it worked. And it wasn't as smooth as one might think. It just didn't happen overnight. There was a struggle between paganism and the papacy. It did not go down without a fight. Paganism had been the belief system all the way from Egypt, but really in our prophetic understanding, starting with Babylon, a long time, people have believed a certain way, and now all of a sudden they're being told they have to believe another way. So let's read some history on this and get a little bit of a history lesson so we can understand better why pagan and papal Rome are so important for us to understand. Imperial, toler Im <clears throat> excuse me. Imperial tolerance only extended to religions that did not resist Roman authority and respect Roman gods. Religions that were hostile to the state 
or any that claimed exclusive rights to religious beliefs and practice were not included, and some exclusive Eastern cults were persecuted. Jews were given special privileges owing to their dominance in economy, numbers, and dispersal. But this tolerance was balanced unevenly on a thin veneer of Jewish submission. Tolerance of Judaism turned to persecution when collaboration was perceived as ending. Intolerant sects could also persecute each other. Jewish sects, like the early Christians, were denounced by the Jewish establishment as dangerous provocateurs. According to some interpretations of the Council of Jamia and of the Berkat Haminim, the results included massacres of Christian communities and Jewish nationalist groups. The early Christian community was perceived at times to be an intrinsically destabilizing influence and threat to the peace of Rome, a religio elithica. The pagans who attributed the misfortunes of Rome and its wider empire to the rise of Christianity and who could only see a restoration by a return to the old ways were faced by the Christian church that had set itself apart from the faith and was unwilling to dilute what it had held to be the religion of the one true God. So we see here that there was a struggle between the pagans and the Christians that were emerging among them. So then we read the actions of Constantius II, who reigned from 337 to 361, marked the beginning of an era of formal persecution against paganism by the Christian Roman Empire. Now, we talked the other night about Constantine and his conversion to Christianity, which was a mock conversion because he was a pagan, but he wanted to unite the empire, and instead of worshiping the S-U-N of God, he said, now we worship the S-O-N of God, but it still was paganism. We keep reading here, it says, with the emanation of laws and edicts which punish pagan practices. From the 350s, new laws prescribed the death penalty for those who performed or attended pagan sacrifices and for the worshiping of idols. Temples were shut down and the traditional altar of victory was removed from the Senate. The harsh imperial edicts had to face the vast following of paganism among the population and the passive resistance of governors and magistrates. The anti-pagan legislation beginning with Constantinus, would in time have an unfavorable influence on the Middle Ages and in some ways become the basis of the Inquisition. Now, we read about Julian. Julian was a nephew of Constantine and received a Christian training. But the murder of his father, brother and two uncles in the aftermath of Constantine's death, he attributed to Constantinus and by association to Christians in general. Now, not true Christians, mind you. Pagan Christians, a veneer, papal Christians ultimately was the idea that they would become. Julian's religious beliefs were syncretic, and he was an innate of at least three mystery religions, initiate, excuse me, of at least three mystery religions, but Julian's religious open-mindedness did not extend to Christianity due to its belief that it had an exclusive perspective on religious truth, which it does. Seeing itself as the only true religion, Christianity was opposed to and fundamentally incompatible with the more inclusive syncretism of paganism, which is what we have just talked about earlier. Paganism would embrace anybody. Just don't say you're number one. As emperor, Julian sought to turn the tide in the attempted suppression of the non-Christian religions. As his first task, he sought to reestablish the old pagan practice of incorporation of other religions. 
But now instead of allowing different cults using different names for the same or similar deities, Julian's training in Christianity and imperial government influenced him to develop a single pagan religion. Thus, his ideas concerning the revival and organization of the old religion, shaping it into a coherent body of doctrine, ritual, and liturgy, with a hierarchy under the supervision of the emperor, was the hallmark of his reign. Julian organized elaborate rituals and attempted to, to set forth a clarified philosophy of Neoplatonism that might unite all pagans. Now, we keep reading here as how this history led down. The continued vitality of paganism led Marcion, who became emperor of the East in 450 upon the death of Theodosius II, to repeat earlier prohibitions against pagan rites. Marcion decreed in the year 451 that those who continued to perform pagan rites would suffer the confiscation of their property and be condemned to death. Perhaps you never knew this history of how the papacy ascended even over the pagan. We often think of how the papacy would persecute Christians, but the papacy also persecuted pagans. In the year 457, Leo I became the first emperor to be crowned by the patriarch of Constantinople. Anthonymus, 467-472, one of the last Western Roman emperors, seems to have planned a pagan revival at Rome. He was a descendant of Procipius, the relative of Julian. Anthonymus gave Messius Phoebus Servius, a pagan philosopher who was a close friend of his, the important offices of Praefectius Urbia of Rome. Council and patrician Anthemius placed the image of Hercules in the act of vanquishing the Nemean line on his coins. The murder of an Athemius by a Russimer destroyed the hopes of those pagans who believed that the traditional rites would now be restored. The pagans wanted their religion back. They did not want it taken from them. Shortly thereafter, in 476, the Western emperor was disposed by Odasser who became the first barbarian king of Italy. In spite of this disaster, pagans made one last attempt to revive the pagan rites. In 484, the magister militium per orterium Illuius revolted against Zeno and raised his own candidate, Leonitus, to the throne. Leonitus hoped to reopen the temples and restore the ancient ceremonies, and because of this, many pagans joined in his revolt against Zeno. Illuius and Elontius were compelled, however, to flee to a remote a Syrian fortress where Zeno besieged them for four years. Zeno finally captured them in 488 and promptly had them executed. So we have a long history here. From the time of Constantine, we have about a 200-year struggle going on between paganism and this emerging papal Rome. We read here, the final triumph of the pseudo-Christian religion was gained in the early part of the 6th century when Pope Symmachus anathemized the emperor Anastasius. At the same time, paganism in the West was overthrown by Clovis, king of the Franks, a cruel and bloodthirsty tyrant who had been converted to Christianity that was then popular by his wife, Cloethede, who was a Catholic. So you see now, the Catholic faith has become popular and we have a barbarian king of the Franks, which ultimately went on to be France, and this all becomes very significant in our understanding that we're going to deal with tomorrow night when we talk about Daniel 11 and how Islam ties into Bible prophecy. 
But it says here, Clovis had promised her that if he were victorious in battle, which he was about to fight near Klong in A.D. 496, he would turn Christian. Now that means Catholic. After a severe struggle, he gained the victory, and soon after, soon after had and several thousand of his followers were baptized. He afterward in A.D. 508, by virtue of his superior skill and strength in battle, succeeded in converting the entire nation of the Visigoths so that Christianity, or Catholicism, pagan Rome, became the nominal religion of the entire Roman world. This is an important history to understand that most people don't today that profess to be Christians. But we need to understand it because it teaches us something about what is going to happen the second time because history will repeat itself. There's going to be a struggle again between those that want to believe a certain way in this world and an emerging new world order, as has been spoken of, an emerging world order that will be headed by pagan Rome, excuse me, papal Rome. And we see it even emerging now as we see the Pope going all over the world and seeking to garner support and the world following after him. Now, let's go to Daniel 8. Let's go to Daniel 8 and read verse 9 to 12. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great. Who did this little horn come out of? It came out of Greece, toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself, even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Now, most people that read this, and I used to read it this way myself as well before I understood some of the things I understand now about history, would read this that it's talking about the transition, or would, excuse me, would not get the impression that it's talking about the transition from pagan to papal Rome. Many people read this as being the papacy, these verses, relating only to the papacy and having nothing to do with this transition. But something to consider in all this, if you're reading out of a 1611 King James Bible, is that that word sacrifice is italicized. So that means that that word has been added by the translators. Now, why did they add it? Well, the 1611 translators did the best they could with their understanding, as well as the fact that Daniel was still to be unsealed. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. The book of Daniel had not been unsealed yet. So they were doing the best with what they understood. But if we follow our understanding of revelation and expansion, and understanding that there can be alternate renderings of these verses based on multiple Hebrew renderings in English. In other words, Hebrew can be understood from different perspectives. This is the way they understood it. This is the way they translated it. But it doesn't mean the translation is 100% correct because Bible scholars have put forth this rendering, a different rendering, and let's see if it makes sense and harmonizes with all that we have learned so far for the past three nights because honestly, if you take a different perspective on these verses, you literally throw off our historical, literal understanding of Bible prophecy that we've been building upon these last three nights. You enter into a whole different realm of understanding. So if we read it like this, out of one of them, we're going to drop the italicized words and we're going to make some of the corrections that need to be made. It says, out of one of them came forth a little horn, 
which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground, and it stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And the word by that we had read earlier in verse 11 can also be translated as from. And so then, and from him the daily was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily, and instead of by reason of transgression, should be interpreted in transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Now, let's add in what needs to be added to help us really understand what this verse is saying. It says, and out of one of them, the western horn division of Greece came forth a little horn, that being the beginning of pagan Rome, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land, that being Jerusalem. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and they cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he, that being pagan Rome, magnified himself even to the prince, that being Jesus Christ, the prince of hosts. And that is exactly what we saw happen. Amen? So what happens, history shows us this. And from him, pagan Rome, as we just read our history, the daily pagan worship was taken away and the place of his, that being pagan Rome's sanctuary, the pantheon, all their pagan idolatry was cast down. And a host or an army was given to papal Rome against the daily. Now, what was that army that was given to papal Rome against pagan worship? That was Clovis, France, the army of that Frank barbarian. And pagan worship was in transgression. Jesus Christ was not in transgression, but pagan worship is in transgression because it is contrary to the truth of God. And it, papal Rome, cast down the truth to the ground, and it, papal Rome, practiced and prospered. Now, if you go with me to Revelation 13, Revelation 13, verse 1, we read, in Revelation 13, verse 1, it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his seat, or gave, excuse me, gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. Now we saw in Revelation 12 that the dragon is a figure for pagan Rome. And pagan Rome did indeed give his power and seat and authority to papal Rome. Or better yet, really, it was taken away from it by papal Rome, would be a more accurate understanding of it. All historical evidence tells us that this was papal Rome. Now, with this in mind, when we go back to Daniel 8, verse 22, it begins to make a lot of sense as to what the papacy is going to do and how it's going to come to its end. It says here in verse 22 of Daniel 8, Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom." When transgressors are come to the full, which is the time we're living in, transgressors coming to their full, 
means probation is about to close on humanity. A king of fierce countenance, we're looking for an antichrist. And understanding dark senses shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty. Remember, we're told that all the world will wonder after the beast, but not by his own power, because who will empower him? The devil. The devil himself will be working through this power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and he shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. There's going to be another persecution, brothers and sisters, of God's people before Jesus Christ comes again. And in verse 23, it says, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. Deception. Through policy he shall deceive. And that's what's happening right now with the way the papacy is behaving in the world. They're using policy to deceive. Some have been referring to it now as the latest climate change. We're starting to see this idea of we need to do something about taking a day off to preserve the world. Because if the world, the whole world would take one day off, the amount of emission, the amount of pollution, and all the things that we're doing to the planet would drastically increase by one-seventh. This is their argument. That would be the policy or craft. But then it says, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. So he's going to trick people. He's going to cause them to think that he's there in love when he's not really there for love. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And we see this idea as well as in Daniel chapter 2. The stone that is cut out of the mountain without hand or, and smites the feet of the image, the nations. So, this all makes perfect sense when we're dealing with papal Rome and it coming to its end. But before we close tonight, one more thing we need to talk about is the time of the end. Because tomorrow night, if we're really going to understand Islam and Israel and prophecy, we need to know this time marker. It helps us. Time markers are important to us. Why are they important? But before we do that, look at me in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 8. Now, we're not going to have time for sake of time because we're covering a lot of ground to get into this time prophecy. But there is something that you need to understand from this verse that's important for us. In verse 13, it says, Then I heard one saint... Speaking unto another saint, said unto that certain saint which spake. Now remember here, saint there is italicized. So you could read it, that certain which spake. Now who was speaking? How long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation? I dropped sacrifices italicized because it does not belong there. To give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. Now, in the margin on that certain which spake, if you have a good marginal reference Bible, you will know or see that that word is the Hebrew word palimony. It's an interesting word in Hebrew. And what it means is the number of secrets or the wonderful numberer. This is referring to Jesus Christ or God himself. Now, why is God referred to in this way? Well, we know... In the Bible, there's the book of Numbers, where all the people are numbered. But also, God numbers time. Remember, and I said this would be significant later in this message tonight, from Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, that he declares the end from the beginning. So God knows the times. He holds time in his hand. He has seen it because he is omniscient. He knows it. So then... If we read, and we need to go to Daniel 12 to understand this better about the time of the end, 
If you go with me to Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, we read, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Now, what is this time of the end, though? Many have just speculated, well, the time of the end is when we get to the end of time. But this time of the end has a specific number associated with it. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, and there stood two, the one on one side of the bank of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that there shall be for a, that it shall be for a time, times, and half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all those things shall be finished. Now, where does this time, times, and half a time? We've seen this before. This has to do with the 1260 years of papal dominance. When that time would finish, which was 1798, it tells us something. In verse 8 it says, And I heard, but understood not. Why? Daniel didn't understand this. He's just, many times the prophets didn't understand what they were prophesying about. We understand it because the book has been unsealed. But he didn't understand. And he said, I, O Lord, Lord, said, I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. 1798. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. What are the wise going to understand? The wise are going to understand the time of the end. The wise will understand that the time of the end marker is 1798. And this becomes very significant for us tomorrow night when we look at Daniel 11. It helps us open it up. It helps us be wise and understand these things. Remember, our theme, a prudent man, for seeth the evil before it come to pass and hides himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. So, sometime after 1798, the book of Daniel would be unsealed and the wise would understand it. Now we see in Revelation 10, let's go there, Revelation 10 verse 1, this unsealing of the book. You can search high and low in the Old Testament and you'll see the only little book that was ever sealed in the Old Testament was the book of Daniel. And right here in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, we see, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet pillars of fire. Now this is a description of Jesus Christ as seen earlier in the book of Revelation. And he had in his hand a little book. And we shouldn't fret over angel being said here because angel means messenger as well. So Jesus is the messenger of his father. It says, and he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Here Jesus is seen with the book of Daniel unsealed. Now, it's interesting to note, and we talked about this on the night, the first night, as we dealt with Revelation 9 and 11, that this unsealing of the book occurs between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. The sixth trumpet being the second woe, in between the seventh trumpet, the third woe. And that, brothers and sisters, would give us a point of reference in time around when the second woe would be fulfilled. But we will not have time for sake of time in these meetings to get into all that. So I'm hoping that you will consider future study and continue to investigate these things. Because it becomes quite fascinating when you understand history and how to decipher the Bible from that perspective. This comes alive.
But we have been studying a chart that was made in the 1800s at the time that the book of Daniel was unsealed covering these very ideas that we're talking about right now. That's why when I began the first night, why don't we study this chart and see if it, the significance that it had for them in that time has even more significance for us in our time because we're that much closer to the return of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. It does have significance for us now in our time. Now, the group of people that studied this studied it with a set of rules which we have discussed. And one of the most important rules out of those 10 rules that we look at when we study Bible prophecy is that rule about figures or literal. How do you know when something in the Bible is figurative or when it is literal? Well, it should always be interpreted literal unless a reading of it would do violence to the laws of nature. And we see that consistently when we look at the book of Daniel and Revelation. We see things in there that you would never see in the natural realm. When has anybody ever seen a locust with long hair and face like a man and all the different things that we see in Revelation chapter 9 about a locust? That's a figure. And we trace that figure down through the book of Judges, and we saw that those locusts were a parallel to the Midianites, which actually are Ishmaelites, which ultimately give us Muslims or those that believe in Islam today. We find a definition for our figure. This is very important. Because what happens today, there's so much confusion around Bible prophecy because people have tried to make the figures literal. And they don't know what they are because they don't exist in nature. So they come up with spiritualistic ideas and interpretations, which bring nothing but confusion around Bible prophecy. But if you understand how to do this and how to decipher figures by letting the Bible be its own interpreter, then there is no confusion. And once the figure is defined, it remains consistent. Now... We also use the historical method of study as well. We, it's what we have been doing. We've been tracing down history. We traced down history tonight, and we saw that history really shows that there was a struggle between pagan and papal Rome, and it also shows us that this same struggle is happening again even now. And who is going to come out on top will be papal Rome. As they did in the past, they're going to do now in the future, and that's what the Bible tells us. But what is the definition of historicism? Through the ages, several different methods of interpreting Daniel and Revelation have been proposed. The historicist method sees these prophecies as being fulfilled through the course of human history, beginning at the time of the prophets who wrote them and spanning to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the literal Son of God, His Father. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 tells us this, right in the beginning of Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. The prophecies that John was giving in the book of Revelation were prophecies that would begin to come to pass very shortly after he prophesied them, and they would continue in a historical method all the way down to the return of our Savior. The same thing with Daniel. Daniel prophesied, he began prophesying while he was in the kingdom of Babylon, and then very shortly thereafter was Medo-Persia, and, of course, he died at that point in the Medo-Persian Empire. But then there comes Greece, comes Rome, then, which pagan Rome, and then papal Rome. So all the way down to the return of Jesus Christ. This is a proper way of understanding the Bible. And as we opened with the idea of God declaring the end by the beginning, another verse that would come of interest to us as we prepare for tomorrow night to talk about Islam and Israel and prophecy would be this one. Genesis chapter 16, verse 11. Genesis chapter 16, verse 11. 
And let me be more clear on this so you can understand what I'm trying to say. It says in Isaiah 46 that I am the Lord God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. But we also saw that that could be interpreted as by the beginning. So what happened in the beginning with a certain group of people that we see literally happening now today? In Genesis 16, verse 11, we read, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, that being Hagar, who was Abraham's, um, well, Sarah's uh, handmaid, who they worked out a deal and had Ishmael, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And Ishmael is the, of the lineage of Ishmael is all our Islamic nations today, the children of the East, those that identify themselves as Arabs, Muslims, however you want to look at that, but that's how they identify themselves. They're descendants of Ishmael, which they claim to be descendants of Abraham. They have a perfect right to the Holy Land as well because they see themselves as rightful heirs. That's how they look at themselves. In verse 12 it says, And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Do we not see a more accurate prophecy of that? Is that could that not be happening today? I mean, is that not what we see happening right now? Islam, the Muslim, a wild man. His hand is against every man. Their philosophy is against all those that do not align themselves with their faith, the Islamic faith. And everyone is against them because they see them as terrible. And they dwell now in the presence of all their brethren. They are all over Europe. They're all over America. They're all over New Zealand, Australia. They're everywhere. The Bible doesn't miss a mark, declaring the end by the beginning. The end, as we see with Revelation chapter 9 and 11 and the woes, we won't go there again tonight, but we went there on the first night. That third woe, which relates to the Islamic world, all the way up to the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. And tomorrow night, as we look at Daniel 11, we're going to see the same thing. Bible prophecy doesn't miss a mark. But as we close now, thinking of pagan Rome, let's go look at a pagan and the impact that Jesus Christ had on this particular pagan. In Matthew chapter 8, perhaps you haven't thought about this, but he was a pagan Roman. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says... Starting in verse 1, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And, see, and Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. I want you to understand something. Leprosy is a direct parallel to sin in the life. We all are leprous, but we all can be cleansed by Jesus if we want to be. But if we keep going forward, it says in verse 5, And when Jesus entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, a Roman centurion, which would be a pagan Roman, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worth thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. 
For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. What is so significant about this story with the Roman centurion that Jesus says, I have not seen so great faith, no, not in Israel. Well, it ties in to John 3.16. For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God the Father sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why? God the Father is the King, and the Son of God is under the authority of his Father. And the Roman centurion understood that he was under an authority. He was under the authority of Caesar. And he had the same authority of a king, even though a pagan king, he had that authority. And because he had that authority as a centurion, he could say to others, you go do this and you go do that, and they would do it. And he looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, I recognize that you're under a similar type of authority, but you have the authority of the great God of heaven, your father. And because you have that authority, whatever you say will be done. And Jesus then said, I have not seen so great a faith, no, not in Israel, because his own people did not recognize that he came in that authority. They denied him as their savior. But the appeal I would make to you this evening is this. Will you embrace the authority of the Son of God in your life? Will you recognize him as one sent by his Father, the King of the universe, the Ancient of Days as identified in Daniel chapter 7, and accept that authority because when Jesus speaks into your life by his promises, then whatever he has promised, that will happen. And by faith, you can embrace it. And just as the Roman centurion embraced it, and his servant was healed the selfsame day, you will be healed as well. Well, I look forward to tomorrow night when we finish this meeting. It's been a blessing to have you here this evening, and I'm going to kneel in prayer and close the meeting now. Father, I just come to you again in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I thank you so much for the sure word of prophecy. I thank you for the word that has been given to us that we can trust, like the Roman centurion, the authority that is on it is that if we embrace it and believe it, then it will work for us. It will heal us, and not only us, it will heal our families. It would heal this whole world if they would receive it. Tragically, there will be so few. Jesus, you said yourself, when I come, will I find faith in the earth? Not that there won't be faith. There just won't be a lot of it. But I just pray that those that were here tonight and those that would watch these meetings in the future would receive you as their Lord and Savior. I thank you so much that you've called us for such a time as this to live in this time of earth's history where you have said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. What privileges are ours to help finish the work and hasten your coming? I thank you for your love and mercy to us and I just pray you watch over and keep all of us safe until we meet together tomorrow night. I thank you for all these things in the mighty name, mighty name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth. Pioneer Health and Missions.